0: Hey everyone, just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobooks, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I use Audible for myself, and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a cran-eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier but it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I can listen while I'm just doing chores around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps does receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me whatsoever. Every recommendation is a book I personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership with Audible, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 68 of History of the Marine Corps. The bullet has not been made that will kill me. Last week's episode opened with a quick discussion about how the Secretary of the Navy selected the next Commandant. The remainder of the episode focused on the Battle of Cherbourg and the Battle of Mobile Bay. This week's episode closes a chapter on the American Civil War. We discuss the Second Battle of Fort Fisher and summarize Lee and Grant's meeting at Appomattox. The episode ends with some statistics about the war, and sets up the discussion on how Marines will enter the Gilded Age of the United States. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The only Confederate port remaining in the war was Fort Fisher and on January 14, 1865, Porter sent 1,600 sailors and 400 marines to support the Union Army with raiding this fort. The marines had their rifles and were originally tasked with capturing the parapet and eliminating Confederate soldiers garrisoned in the fort. Once the marines accomplished their mission, the sailors would step up and charge the cannoneers. Navy Captain Randolph Breeze was in command, and he modified the original plan. Instead of having the Marines scale the fort's walls, he had them prepare rifle pits to better protect the advance. Unfortunately for the sailors, they had to face the brunt of the attack. Now let's take a few seconds and break down how dangerous the strategy was. The Union sailors and marines were about 250 yards from the fort's defenses. At that distance, rifles were very accurate, and there was a good chance a Confederate soldier would be able to take aim and pick off incoming troops. Breeze and the marines prepared rifle pits to act as cover fire as the sailors charged the fort in an attempt to hopefully minimize casualties. Marines were accurate with their rifles, so Union marines could take out Confederate soldiers who exposed themselves from the parapets. However, the Confederate troops knew this as well. They wouldn't take the risk of exposure, so Confederate troops fired through the small openings and targeted the sailors running through the open terrain. This fort was well defended and nicknamed the Malakoff of the South. A reference to the Russian fort during the Crimean War Fort Fisher guarded the entrances to a vital port in Wilmington, North Carolina. Since 1861, the fort was constantly improved due to the foresight of Confederate Colonel William Lamb, as he built the fort, quote, of such proportions that no blockader dared challenge its guns for more than two years, unquote. Taking this fort would undoubtedly stop the Confederacy and the Union decided to launch a large-scale amphibious landing to take this important defense. The day before amphibious troops landed, the Union ironclads anchored off Fort Fisher and bombarded the area. The Confederate commander of Fort Fisher was William Lamb and he made a lot of repairs to the fort. He built new barracks, repaired the guns, and gathered supplies needed for a lengthy battle. He also removed any markers in the bay identifying mines. He requested hand grenades to deter the infantry, and more mines to help defend against the Union's ironclads. He also asked for 500 slaves to help support his already exhausted laborers. He would receive some reinforcements, and by the time Union forces reached the fort, Lamb had 1,500 men to help defend, but most of his other requested supplies wouldn't be delivered. The day after Union forces landed and the Marines prepared their rifle pits, Breeze sent two detachment of Marines into the trenches. The detachments were led by Lieutenant Louis E. Fagan and Captain Lucian L. Dawson. Breeze assembled the sailors into three assault waves, who would attack through the Marines. While Breeze was positioning the ground forces, Porter moved his squadron near the fort and bombarded the Confederate defenses. During the day, Porter's squadron concentrated their rifle fire on Fort Fisher and protected the ground troops. At night, the ironclads took their place and fired periodically. This tactic kept the Confederate troops up all night, repairing the fort's guns and defenses. Casualties started to climb to the hundreds within the fort, which drastically impacted morale and the speed at which damages could be fixed. While the fort was busy with the bombardment, it was time for the sailors to attack. But somehow the orders to form three assault waves were misunderstood, and the sailors formed to the left of the marines. Communication with the army was also non-existent, so Breeze didn't know when the army would attack. To top it off, Marine Captain Dawson received an unclear order about joining the assault, so he moved his men from the trenches and joined the sailors. The lack of communication and leadership in the assault wave created mass confusion. Breeze mistakenly assumed that at 1400, the Joint Forces would attack. He prepared the ships to shift their fire to the inside of the fort, and the Marines were moved to the forward line to cover the assault, and take out any Confederate troops who expose themselves. The sailors and Marines heavily questioned Breeze's plan. When a runner was sent to update the army on the Navy's position, General Curtis was appalled at Breeze's lack of organization and strategy. Before the messenger was sent back, Curtis voiced his concerns that the formation was too narrow and too long, which would expose the formation to flanking fire while minimizing the amount of return fire. If you go forward as you are, you will be fearfully punished, and the only good you will do for us will be to receive the fire which otherwise would come to our lines. Porter wouldn't listen to Curtis. Instead of advancing directly towards the fort, the sailors and marines advanced almost parallel to the Confederate guns, exposing their flank. The remaining marines in the rifle pits tried to support the attack, but over 800 Confederate troops fired back. As the Marines and sailors advanced, they sustained serious injuries. As one Marine laid injured on the battlefield, Marine Corporal Andrew J. Tomlin rushed towards the enemy fire, hoisted him over his shoulder, and carried him to a covered position. Tomlin would receive the Medal of Honor for his action, and his citation read, quote, as Corporal of the Guard on board the USS Wabash during the assault on Fort Fisher on January 15, 1865, as one of 200 Marines assembled to hold a line entrenchment in the rear of the fort, which the enemy threatened to attack in force following a retreat in panic by more than two-thirds of the assaulting ground forces, Corporal Tomlin took his position in line and remained until morning when relief troops arrived from the fort. When one of his comrades was struck down by enemy fire, he unhesitatingly advanced under a withering fire of musketry into an open plain close to the fort and assisted the wounded man to a place of safety. In the fort, Confederate Marine 2nd Lieutenant Henry Doak oversaw an 8-inch mortar. Sniper fire and naval bombardments pinned down the Confederate artillery crew, and after three days of taking naval shells, Many of them were out of action. Doak quickly took charge of one of the remaining mortars and engaged Union troops. Commodore Radford on the New Ironside spotted Doke. He aimed in and unleashed the ship's powerful guns at his location. The naval shells annihilated the Confederate gun crew and injured Doak in the process. He would later recover and join Lee's force at Appomattox. When the assault started, the lack of leadership and direction confused the troops. The Marine battalion fell out of formation, and soon they were mixed in with the sailors attacking the fort. This confusion resulted in multiple casualties, and many sailors and Marines retreated from Confederate fire. One of the Marines who was seeking cover was musician Alexander J. MacDonald. He was an experienced Marine. He fought during the Mexican-American War, and was one of the Marines to charge the castle of Chapultepec and enter the halls of Montezuma. McDonald was injured during this battle, making him the only combat casualty suffered by Marine musicians during the Civil War. The Marines tried to catch up to their colleagues, but deep sand beds limited their speed, and they never successfully teamed up with the assault wave. The Confederate troops successfully defended against the sailors and Marines, and rebels stopped their advance. Throughout this whole confusion, only three Marines were able to charge through the Palisades, Corporal John Ranahan and Privates John Shivers and Henry Thompson. They all received the Medal of Honor for their action that day. Navy Lieutenant Robley D. Evans was one of the five men who managed to make it near the top of the parapet. He was shot through the leg during the assault, but he continued his advance. As he neared the target, he was hit again, but this time through the knee by a 58 caliber musket fired from a nearby Confederate soldier. The soldier took aim at Evans again, hitting him in the foot and shooting off part of his toe. Evans pulled his pistol and fired at the soldier, hitting him in the neck. The Confederate soldier rolled down the hill and came to rest near Evans. Marine Private Henry Wasmuth saw Lieutenant Evans bleeding heavily near the parapet. The Confederate troops made catcalls and dared the Union forces to come back through the fortifications. Wasmuth took him up on their challenge. He charged through the gap, grabbed Evans, and dragged him out of the line of fire. But as soon as they were clear from Confederate muskets, naval guns from New Ironsides began to hit around them leaving the two men to defend against the enemy and friendly fire. Evans warned the Marine to just take cover, but Wasmith ignored his warning and said, quote, The bullet has not been made that will kill me, unquote. As he stood up and charged, Wasmith was shot in the neck, and Evans helplessly watched as the Marine bled to death. By 1600, the assault by the sailors and the Marines was over. 300 casualties resulted from the battle from the Marines and sailors alone. However, their sacrifices weren't totally in vain, and they provided enough of a distraction for the 3,500 Union soldiers to launch their assault and establish a foothold near the base of the fort. The Army's assault drew the Confederates' attention, which allowed the Marines and sailors to retreat. But seven Marines in the front trenches, one sergeant and six privates, Joined the attack to take the traverses near the fort. Union forces made progress throughout the day, and at 2200, they achieved victory. The Confederate commander offered his sword to Captain Lewis Moore of the 7th Connecticut, officially ending the battle. Once victory was achieved, a cheer went through the fort, which reached the ears of sailors on board ships. Marines and sailors echoed the cheer as their ships sent up a great cascade of rockets to celebrate their victory, Squads of Marines patrolled the fort, collected weapons, stacked the dead bodies, and guarded prisoners. The other Marines took this opportunity to find souvenirs, which included the liquor stash found in the Confederate hospital bunker. In a true sailor and Marine fashion, they drank the booze and staggered from one traverse to the next, collecting equipment and randomly firing weapons as they made progress. At 7.15 in the morning, on January 16th, multiple Marines were spotted going into the fort's main magazine. Fifteen minutes later, there was a huge explosion that sent debris and bodies flying. 200 Union and Confederate soldiers were killed, including three Marines. It's not clear whether the Marines ignited the magazine. A wire leading toward the river caused rumors that the magazine could have been booby-trapped. However, General Terry's Court of Inquiry blamed the intoxicated Union troops instead of the Confederacy. The battle resulted in 1,000 casualties for the Union and almost 2,000 for Confederate forces. Quote, the wreckage of war littered the beach, parapets, and bomb-proofs within the fort. Bodies lay where they fell already beginning to stiffen in odd contortions. Sailors and Marines sat in shocked disbelief at the soldiers' callous treatment of the dead. To their distress, they found bodies stripped, lying naked on the beach, their possessions taken not by desperate Confederate scavengers, but by morbid Union souvenir seekers." After the successful capture of the fort, Marines wouldn't receive their usual praise. Breeze and Porter both blamed the Marines for the failure of the naval assault. Admiral Porter relayed to senior Marine leadership that he supported the Marines, but, quote, though the Marines did not do their duty, unquote. Marines were blamed for the failure of the Navy and the explosion of the magazine. Captain Dawson fired back in his after-action report, and he stated, quote, Naval officers unrealistically expected disparate groups of men, whether Navy or Marines, to assemble as a cohesive unit on short notice and complete difficult missions without prior rehearsals or coordination under enemy fire. Out of the 100 Confederate Marines in Fort Fisher, only a few were able to escape. The rest were either taken prisoner or died. With Fort Fisher taken, The only Confederate Marine post remaining was Drury's Bluff. But the Confederate Marine Corps was diminishing in strength, and after Fort Fisher, Grant's Union forces were getting closer to victory. The last major battle of the Civil War was the Battle of Appomattox. By this time, Confederate supplies were low, and the troops were surviving off handfuls of corn. During the Battle of Appomattox, Confederate troops were almost surrounded by Grant's forces, and they were outnumbered five to one. Supplies or reinforcements weren't coming, and the next morning, the Confederacy attempted to defend against Union forces one last time, but the numbers were too strong. Robert E. Lee stated, quote, There is nothing left for me to do but go and see General Grant, and I would rather die a thousand deaths. Unquote. Before noon, Lee sent a letter to Grant under a white flag. Grant was resting in a field. He had a brutal headache, and he was trying to ease the pain. When the messenger showed up, Grant opened the letter, looked at it, and handed it over to General John Rawlins for him to read out loud. In the letter, Lee surrendered, and Grant's headache quickly disappeared. Lee dispatched one of his men to find a place where he and Grant could meet he stopped the first civilian who passed by. It was William McLean, who grudgingly agreed to let the two armies meet at his house. Now call this a coincidence or fate, but back in 1861, William McLean gave his house to General Beauregard during the Battle of Bull Run. He left Manassas after the battle, with the sole purpose of heading to a quiet location away from the war. I can't imagine what was going through this man's head when he received a request for his house a second time. Robert E. Lee wore a crisp gray uniform, and he carried an engraved sword with him. He was the first to arrive and said, I have probably to be General Grant's prisoner, and thought I must make my best appearance. Grant arrived 30 minutes later, wearing a private's dirty jacket, no sword, and his boots and trousers covered in mud. The two men shook hands, and they started their conversation. In Grant's memoir, he said, quote, I feel like anything rather than rejoicing at the downfall of a foe who had fought so long and valiantly, and had suffered so much for a cause, though that cause was, I believe, one of the worst for which a people ever fought, and one for which there was the least excuse, unquote. This moment was an emotional time for everyone involved. The two generals knew each other and conversed as friends. This was a cordial meeting. Grant was enjoying the conversation with Lee. Before he was snapped back into reality, and the Confederate general reminded him why they were there. The scribe felt the emotion as well, and he was shaking so much that he couldn't write, and another soldier stood up to take his place. Grant offered some very reasonable terms. He allowed Confederate officers to keep their sidearms and personal possessions. It was April 9th, which was the start of planning season, and Grant allowed the Confederate troops to keep their horses as well. Grant provided food and supplies to Lee's men, and Lee agreed to Grant's terms. The two men shook hands, and Lee headed off to his men. This day marked the beginning of uniting the country again. As Lee was leaving, Union soldiers started to cheer, but Grant quickly ordered them to stop. Quote, the Confederates are now our prisoners, and we did not want to exult over their downfall. Unquote. This day was the end of the American Civil War. Five days later, on April 14th, Abraham Lincoln attended the play Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. Confederate sympathizer John Wilkes Booth entered the theater with his forty four caliber Derringer, and he fired, at point-blank range, into the president's head. Federal troops would go on a two-week search for Booth. He was cornered in a barn in Maryland and shot in the neck by a Union soldier. Lincoln's assassination caused many rumors and it caused the citizens in D.C. to panic. There were fears that the war would be restarted, and sentries were doubled at naval yards. Marine Solomon Haggerty, who served during and after the Civil War, had a personal diary he kept beginning with his enlistment on September 1, 1864, and continued through January 1867. In it, he recounts events surrounding President Lincoln's assassination. It's a little hard to read, but I'll have the journal up on historyofthemarinecorps.com for you to reference. Fortunately, tensions didn't escalate to a point of an attack. The American Civil War drastically impacted the country, and the Marine Corps felt the results as well. Marines suffered serious breaks in morale and loyalty in the following years. Desertions were high in every military branch and the Union Army was reported to have 30,000 men desert after one battle alone. Marine Corps desertions were along the same percentage as Army troops. During the entire war, the number of Marines who deserted was equal to the Corps' maximum strength during the entire engagement. That's incredible. The number of battle casualties for Union Marines during the Civil War was 148 killed in action and 131 wounded in action. 257 are reported to have died from disease and other causes, and 40 are unaccounted for. In 1871, 303,356 Union troops were reburied in 74 congressional-mandated national cemeteries. Confederate soldiers were not allowed to be buried in national cemeteries for many years after the war. In the late 1860s, When the Reberio Corps found remains of Union soldiers lying next to Confederate soldiers, they moved the Union soldiers to a national cemetery and left the Confederate soldiers where he laid. Although the Marines weren't heavily involved with many of the larger battles of the war, the service they performed on naval vessels serving as gun crews played a big part in the Union's success. About a month after the war ended, the strength of the Marine Corps was 3,860. 87 officers, and 3,773 enlisted. On March 2nd, 1867, Commandant Zilin was promoted to Brigadier General, making him the first official general in the Marine Corps. The next 33 years after the war would be the least active the Marine Corps would ever be. The Corps faced problems, and the United States was heading into the Gilded Age, The economy, technology, and government of the country faced a drastic change. This growth resulted in the international presence of the United States, and Marines began to undertake new missions throughout the globe, especially in the Far East. During this time, the Corps' mission would change, and the Marines served as the strong political arm of the United States. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll follow the Marines and the Navy as they embark on international missions. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's suggestion is The Korean War by Bruce Cummings. So this will be the first time announcing this publicly, but I am in the process of starting another podcast. I'm still narrowing down the name, so stand by for that, but the podcast will be a docuseries focusing on specific events to the Marine Corps. Our first subject is the Korean War. Bruce Cummings is a leading expert in Korea, and his book does a phenomenal job explaining the history and events that lead up to the Korean War. This is a detailed book, and whether you're new to the Korean War or not, you will learn something new. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook, and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of audiobook choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.